all the times I've been into the theatre, and I never knew this was hiding away in here. Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Hi, Welcome. This is Tick Tick Stuff 2020 Election Podcast for Saturday, the 12th of September. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tina Kato We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about this election that New Zealand is embarking on, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 35 days until the election. So attentive listeners may have recognised that voice at the top, but if not, that was Greens co-leader Marama Davidson discovering the studio in the Beehive Theatre She and James Shaw sat down with our staff colleagues Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass, ably recorded by the brilliant Jack Price, for the latest in our leader interviews. So yeah, it's wall-to-wall greenery in the pod today, but it's also been quite a green week out in the real world with a bunch of environmental policy announcements. Earlier in the week, Labour promised to have New Zealand running on 100% renewable energy by 2030, and National Leader Judith Collins yesterday announced she wants 80,000 electric cars on the road by 2023. It was the week the campaign proper kicked into gear finally, and we started to hear actual real campaign promises, didn't we? Starting out with that Matariki holiday talk from Labour on Monday, and then into the more traditional election fodder of tax and infrastructure policy rollouts. But it's really still the coronavirus election, isn't it? It's been hard to avoid the developments from the Mount Roskill Church subcluster in Auckland and the news of a bus driver with COVID and the updates on the various supermarket visits of people who have since tested positive. You've got to wonder what part all those things will play in Monday's decisions about alert levels. Will Auckland stay at level 2.5 and the rest of the country at level 2? Either way, you can bet whatever decision's made, it'll become political fodder. Personally, I've been hanging out for policies on car parking tickets. Eh? Yeah, yeah, didn't I tell you about this? Made one of my rare trips away from the work-from-home office on Thursday to go to a meeting and ended up getting a parking ticket for being 20 minutes late back to my car. It's just so annoying. I tell you... The first party to ban parking tickets gets my vote. The resolutely neutral Eugene Bigham starts to reveal his political colours on the air at last. Hmm. What are you going to do if Advance New Zealand takes up your brilliant new policy? You're always trying to put me in an awkward position, aren't you, darling? All part of the service, Eugene. Anyway, this is the bit where I say, what's been happening? Well, sticking with coronavirus news of a kind, hopes that the rugby championship... Now, Adam, that's a game that New Zealanders play, and the rugby championship is an annual competition between New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and Argentina played with the oval ball. Uh Anyway, there were hopes that it would be... The tournament, at least, would be hosted in New Zealand as a sort of one-off this year, and they appear to have been dashed. The Australians, always the bloody Aussies, They appear to have won the rights to hold the tournament. Now, the reason we're talking about this on an election podcast is because it's turned into a political football. Boom, boom. Critics have said, look, all the lockdowns we've gone through, leading the world in COVID management, etc., etc., surely we should have been able to get this across the line and to have won these rights. National leader Judith Collins, when asked about it, spun attention straight back on the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern saying, look, that's for her to address. Ardern, meanwhile, conscious of the rugby crowd and the rugby vote, said, look, we, the government, put an enormous amount into winning the bid to host this tournament, even putting in place arrangements where the players could start training three days after landing in the country. So don't blame me, she was more or less saying. Act leader David Seymour, he's really hammering the debt issue. As New Zealand Inc.'s mortgage increases to pay for the fallout from the virus and with parties making all sorts of campaign promises, ACT has launched the Debt Destroyer, which is an online calculator where people can see what impact cutting various services and promises will do to reducing net government debt. You know, 
reverse the benefit rises that, quote, Labour snuck through, end quote, during COVID. Save 7.98 billion. That kind of thing. So, on with the show. In the latest of our series of political party leader interviews, Stuff senior journalist Andrew Vards and political editor Luke Melpass sit down with Greens co-leaders Marama Davidson and James Shaw. Over to Luke. So, how was it that a human rights advocate and a management consultant from London became co-leaders of the New Zealand Green Party? Please explain. I think that's a question for their membership who choose and vote for um, their co-leaders. I can only speak to my to my campaign, I suppose, and I can only speak to my own background. Um, I was very clear about the importance of staying connected to grassroots um, progressive movements for change. And I know that that was also going to be really important for the party. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of the reasons. And, and to be fair, we were chosen at different times. So, you know, we weren't chosen together. Um, we're chosen on our own merits and the co-leadership races have always been at different times. So the members never have really thought of electing two people. They have to focus on one co-leader at a time. And yeah. when were you elected, Mother? 2018 April, so it's two years and a bit so far, yeah. How about you, James? May of 2015. So I just had my fifth anniversary a few months back. Uh, how did I end up? I mean, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Marum and I, um, I think, in some ways, uh, have been chosen because we're different. Mm. You know, and when you look at Matilda and Russell, they were quite different. You had, you know, Russell and um, Jeanette before that, Jeanette and Rod before that, and I think that's one of the things that the members do when they're selecting their co-leaders is they say, well, we we don't want two of the same. Mm. You know, we we actually want people who can kind of balance each other out, and so we are quite different uh, and have different life experiences and speak to different communities. And I know it's, it, you know, kind of, we're obviously a reasonably small party by comparison to uh, Labour or National, but we are also quite a broad tent as well. We've actually got quite a diverse membership. That's interesting. It's interesting, I think, about the diverse membership of the Greens. I guess that means that different parts of the party place different levels of importance on different things, right? So between the two of you, what would you just putting you both on the spot, your three biggest achievements in this term of government that you can point to and go out to voters and say, here's why you should back the Greens. Well, clearly I hear every day that people are finding it difficult to put down roots and live in a an affordable, healthy home. So the progressive home ownership, the start and the $400 million of um, partnering with community providers uh, for thousands more families to be able to own a home that would not have been able to. That's a meaningful everyday life change for people. And I'm really, really proud. It was part of our confidence and supply agreement, yes. Um, so that's obviously something that we're grateful and proud to have achieved and pushed for. Um Look, I'm really proud of the long-standing champion uh, voice that we have put up constantly and consistently to improve the incomes for the lowest income households across this whole country. And that 
we know that that is, have been, has been of vital importance. Um, we're proud, we're pleased that uh, some of the changes that have been put in place have been because of the Greens pushing. We know that there's a lot more work to do on that. Are you talking about uh, indexation of benefits there? Is that what you're Tagging yeah. benefit increases to wage increases, removing that sanction, removing the sanction that punished mothers for not naming the fathers was completely immoral and I'm really glad that we've changed that. And also improving um, the abatement rate so people are able to hold on to more of their earned income before they lose the support income. Uh, and also um, the increase in $25, you know, was important. It's still not enough and we're really clear about that and I am pleased um to be that champion party voice for the lowest income households and pushing for that social change as well. Do we get three each? Yeah, oh. sure. Why not? <laughs> let's live a little. Let's live a little. Co-leaders, right? Like top <laughs> yeah. six. Yeah, three yeah. each is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can't do one and a half. Yeah. Um, gosh, it's 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 hard to choose, but I think I am also proud of. Um, actually, we helped the people to halt the development at Ihumato. James and I wrote a letter to the Prime Minister and also we turned up, um, the first politicians, to turn up on Ihumato after the eviction notices were served and we helped the people halt that development for a more just, a more tiriti justice outcome to be allowed to happen. That is still happening, but the people stopped that development and um, a solution is being worked on and I am absolutely proud of that. I would say this, but unanimous agreement on the Zero Carbon Act, uh, the reforms to the emissions trading scheme, setting up the commission, so on. So that package of reforms around climate change, I think, will fundamentally alter the shape of the economy over the coming 30 years. Uh, and, and so to me, that's really important. Um, I'm really proud of the work that Eugenie Sage has done in conservation. Um, there's a list of things too long to mention there, but probably the signature piece was the Jobs for Nature package, you know, $1.3 billion dollars. Um, getting people to do work that needs doing during the COVID downturn and making sure that the recovery is a green recovery. You know, I think that's really important. Uh, and I think the third one, which is a little bit kind of green nerdy, is uh, redesigning the government policy statement on transport. <laughs> so we have basically... Tell us about that. Well, we've fundamentally... <laughs> I wheel Julianne in for you, but yeah. um, we've fundamentally uh, rebalanced the way that we do transport planning and, and funding allocations. So uh, the Land Transport Fund used to be just about roads, primarily motorways, and what we've said is actually uh, all forms of ground transport need to be balanced against each other, and you take a kind of a rational look at the thing that has the best... Um, benefit-cost ratio, and you allocate money in, in, in towards those things. And we've put billions of dollars into heavy rail, into light, light rail, uh, into um, regional rail, uh, into cycleways, um, multimodal, you know, um, urban design and so on and so forth. And so I think whilst, you know, this kind of thing is going to take a long time to play out, again, it'll fundamentally alter the way our cities work and how we get between our cities. Just on... The long timeframes that you're talking about, you know, 30 years uh, for climate and looking well ahead for transport, even Ihamato actually. How do you go to voters and say, here's something you can bank when what you've really done is put in place a framework that is going to take a long time to, to yield benefits? I think that people rely on us for the long term. You know, they rely on the other parties for the short term and then they rely on us for the long term. So I think that the people who vote Green... Actually, the reason that they vote green is because we take a multi-decadal approach. And when they see us putting in place those long-term frameworks, they say, that's great, that's <laughs> that's what you were there for. And it's also, 
It's also about us being very clear with people, with voters, that it is also the Greens who want to push for a faster pace of transformational change and that when people understand that, if people want that, that it is the Greens that we'll need to see in any government arrangement. And so I think you're right. Um, People do think long term and want to think about generational change, but also rely on the Greens to push for that change to happen urgently and not take too much time that we can't actually meet the scale of the challenges that we're all trying to solve as well. So hypothetically, if you are part of a new government after October 17, what are the two major things that you'd be taking into coalition negotiations and saying these are the things that we want and that we want quickly? Well, you've already seen three of our priority election announcements, the detailed and costed plans. We've got another three um, to come. And so choosing two is difficult because it is the members who, once we can see all the numbers on the table after election night plus the specials, it is the members who will actually sit down and say which are our priorities. There's absolutely likely to be more than two. But we are being straight up with voters and saying these are some of the priorities that we are giving to you now. These are the proposals that we're being really clear. This is important to us. This is something that is going to stay a priority and, you know, here's how we're going to do it. So already we've had um, Homes for All, Poverty Action Plan and Clean Energy Plan and we've got some others to come. I think if you, you know, one thing we often talk about are the twin crises of um, persistent poverty on the one hand and the climate crisis on the other. So those aren't policy packages, obviously, and in order to fix either of those things, it's an incredibly complex landscape of stuff that you need to work on. But if you had to, I would say those are the things we want to make the greatest difference to. In terms of what you say, though, about the climate change crisis and the biodiversity crisis, I mean, 30 years is too long. We're in the countdown to extinction now for so many species. Um, But your priorities so far in this election campaign have been homes and the wealth tax. So I just wonder, as a Green Party, wouldn't you be better concentrating on those immediate crises at hand? So we've released three three proposals so far, the Poverty Action Plan, uh, Homes for All and the Clean Energy Plan, and we've got others coming up along the way. Um, those are all built around solving those twin crises of climate change and inequality. So you can't fix poverty and inequality without fixing housing. You can't do that also without you know, supporting people in the lowest incomes. You can't fix climate change without tackling transport and energy and agriculture. And so those are the policy packages that we're putting towards those things. And in fact, you know, if you look at housing, Mm. that is also Mm. a climate change Mm. uh, issue in terms of the quality of our housing, the energy that they use, Mm. the energy that gets consumed building them, the opportunity to solarise them and and so on and so forth. And also, you know, as Marama Kind of, you know, consistently says it's very difficult to ask people to care about climate change when they're struggling to put food on the table and a roof over their head. So they're kind of hooked into each other, inextricably intertwined. Your wealth tax policy, though, I mean, arguably it's very ambitious, but arguably is unachievable in the current climate, would you not have been better 
sort of spooking the horses, as it were, and concentrate on the gains that you can make, especially in the environment space. May I? Yes, please. <laughs> yes. Okay. So right now, the astonishing sums of money that we're putting into the economy through things like the support for businesses, the wage subsidy and so on, the benefit of that is actually largely flowing to asset owners in the form of increasing share market price. We had a record close on the stock market the other day uh, and house prices, obviously, which are also affected by things like New Zealanders coming home wanting to buy a house and so on. So people who own wealth and assets are actually doing pretty well as a result of the COVID-19 crisis because all of that stimulus is ultimately benefiting them. On the other side of the equation, people who work uh, for a living and earn an income but who don't necessarily own any assets are actually seeing, on average, declines, right? So we had the first ever recorded decline in weekly wages, about 7% the other day. And so uh, fundamentally what we're saying is we would like the people who are actually doing okay, if not better out of this, to chip in just a wee bit to actually support the whole country to get through, to solve some of those long-term crises, like in housing, like in climate change, uh, like poverty and so on, as well as to help pay back the debt that we're running up. And you've got to remember that currently the way the tax system works is it's largely about income tax, right? In other words, the very people who are facing the downturn as a result of, of COVID are paying income taxes to pay off the debt, whereas the people who are doing well out of it are largely untaxed in terms of their assets. So there's a fundamental imbalance there. We've got declining government revenues because, you know, the economy is shrinking. You've got massively increased costs at the same time. You've got to close that gap somehow over the course of the next few years. It doesn't seem unreasonable to ask people to just consider broadening the tax base and chip in. There is absolutely an appetite at the moment. People are understanding that tinkering with our tax system is going to further entrench inequality, and especially in the context of COVID-19, which has just thrown a light on what we knew was already there. Some of the um, poverty and poverty issues and that we've long been fighting. So there is um, an appetite for people who understand actually actually, right now is the opportunity. Right now is the very time for economic transformation, including with our with our tax system, which has been lagging in terms of um, worldwide comparison, in terms of top tax rate for a long, long time, especially after um, National gutted uh, the rates back in 2010. So uh, people do realise actually we've got to do something that cannot continue. Clearly the Labour Party don't agree, given their tax policy this week. Do you now see the Green Party as the true party of the working class, given that Labour, <laughs> Labour's policies largely benefit the wealthy and the middle class? What I will say, um, and I forget exactly which union, it may have been CTU, is that um, the unions themselves have started to come out and recognise and praise our visions and our policies for the working class, for people who work. So, I mean, that's not us saying that. 
but they've certainly gone through what we're offering and our record and relationship with unions and working people. For example, we said that we wanted to extend sick leave. We said that we wanted to improve and put essential workers, um, pay essential workers a living wage. And so um, there has been a recognition that it is the Green Party um, and only the Green Party who are pushing for those most supportive changes for working people and their families and communities. Does COVID give the Greens a particular political, and I don't mean in a mercenary sense, but a particular political opportunity here? You were, you were saying that you know it, COVID has shone a light on what you on on what was clearly underneath there. I mean, how do you plan to use that to to push your particular agenda? I realise that there has been that comment out there that all political parties are using this as an opportunity for for their values for their ideologies. But the Greens have been talking about, uh, for example, fiscal and budgetary approaches that take wider wellbeing indicators into account for decades. <laughs> but the COVID-19 and the, and the pandemic situation brings that to light even more so. Having a resilient earth and environment is a health response. Having people living in healthy, affordable homes is a health response. So a health response is right at the forefront of people's minds at the moment. Making sure that people are secure, are able to afford to live with decency, are able to afford to be healthy, have healthy food, all of that is now understood to be a health response. Having an environment that continues to provide clean, fresh drinking water is a health response. And so, yes, there is absolutely an opportunity for economic transformation. And really all that is is about making decisions for the long term in a way that protects our environment and our communities for the long term. That's all that an economy is. Um, and I think there is a, a massive appetite and a, and a hunger, actually, for people to see parties putting up those enduring solutions. But I know James will have something to well, say on that. I, I sort of see it less in the frame of an opportunity and more as a responsibility mm. because we are, you know, like I said before, we're kind of firehosing this astonishing amount of liquidity into the economy to support the country through the pandemic crisis. And I think that's entirely appropriate because if we didn't, we would be currently in the grips of the <laughs> most nightmarish recession that any of us would ever remember. Um, but uh, the other crises are still there. You know, climate crisis still there, biodiversity crisis still there, the crisis of endemic poverty still there, housing, three waters, transport, you know, all of that infrastructure underspend over the last 30 or 40 years, all still there, all still needs to get paid for. And so what we're doing is we're basically bringing forward almost the next 20 years worth of discretionary budgets. I think we have an absolute responsibility to spend it on resolving those long-term challenges facing the country uh, so that our children and grandchildren don't then have to deal with both the debt that we've run up to get ourselves through this crisis as well as get themselves through those crises. So I, I, I actually see this as uh, a moment where, um, as a country, as a planet, um, I think we've got an absolute responsibility to keep an eye on the long term whilst we're making these very, very big short-term decisions. I mean, a real, a real clear, tangible example of everything that James has just said is about funneling and supporting jobs which are going to 
head us in a low emissions direction and not locking in creating jobs and supporting industries that lock us into high emission and high climate polluting direction. And so that's the stuff that the Greens are really looking out for at the moment. Um, Because we could, in the urgency that is understandable right now, we could create enduring harm um, if we're not really, really clear about the long-term impacts of what we're doing right now. Mm. Now, um, unfortunately for you, James Shaw in particular, $11.7 million that has been urgently going out the door on the Green School has been a pretty large focus um, over the past couple of weeks. And we were talking about this before and just have to ask, what were you thinking? (laughs) I think I said in some detail what I was thinking uh, when when I uh, apologised for what I thought was ultimately a lapse of judgment. Um, but as I said in that uh, in, in that stand-up, um, ultimately, you know, we're an environment, there were about 40, 50 projects that I was pushing along to try and shift the dial about where that future investment goes. Mm-hmm. And this one had been pushed by the local mayor um, and had come to our attention that way. It met a number of other really strong criteria and I just didn't think it through in terms of the, um, you know, the impact. Because we, like we know that our... Schools have been underfunded for decades. This government has put a significant amount of money, about $2.3 billion into public school rebuilds. But the lived experience of a lot of parents and principals and teachers is that they they haven't seen that yet. So it's actually not surprising uh, at all. And that was my lapse of judgment that, you know, when people haven't seen it, that they're going to respond to that. I know, but James, like it's it's a Green Party policy. It has been for a long time. Did you did you just forget or yeah. is it like the members, because there's a lot of members who don't think you were true green and that you're too conservative. Like, did you forget or, or is it the latter? No, it's it, like, to, to tell you the truth, the way that I was looking at that whole project is because it was an infrastructure fund and we'd gone through the experience back in January with the, the sort of $8 billion infrastructure thing then. And we thought the number of the decisions then were quite poor. We sort of, you know, said, okay, well, what are the things that we don't want to put our money into? We don't want to put our money into motorways. We don't want to put our money into kind of like, you know, large-scale irrigation projects, you know, airport extensions, like that kind of stuff. And so as these projects were coming through, and there were, you know, thousands of them uh, in in the proposed list, everything that was rated reasonably highly, we kind of went through and went, okay, earmark that money around that. And is it an airport? No. Is it a motorway? No. Is it a... And it was like that. It was... That's all it was, right? I just was moving too quickly, not sort of assessing it in a political sense like that. But you pushed for it. Like you wrote an email pushing for it. Yeah, so but that I, wasn't I, a quick... I, I pushed about 40, 45, 50 projects that included things like a hydrogen energy refuelling network for our heavy trucking fleet, like a whole stack of cycleways that Julianne's been uh, working on, like a whole bunch of waste projects. Actually, the waste projects ended up getting funded elsewhere because they weren't actually shovel-ready enough, uh, and so on. And so I was, you know, kind of saying, oh, like, okay, there's the list. How's it going? Is that what, Has that fallen off? Why has it fallen off? Stick it back on, you know, that kind of thing. So one of the things I, in New Zealand politics I find most fascinating is the dynamic between you two and how your relationship as co-leaders has evolved. How did this affect the relationship? Like, were you mad, Marama? Well, because James very, very quickly um, 
owned uh, the the lack of judgment very quickly apologized to to us as colleagues as well um, there wasn't a lot of time for anger we were really focused on okay how do we resolve this um, how do we maintain contact with principals and teachers unions um, how do we talk to communities who have been angered by this and that's where our focus went and I can say that truly and that was actually not just about me that was the whole caucus MPs um, because James very quickly came to the table and had an honest discussion with us about where, how it happened, how it came to be. All that was left to do was to focus on what we do from here, um, get our campaign back on scratch, back on the pathway, and work with James um, to, we did the apology, I think it was on the Tuesday, uh, I came down to Wellington um, and work with James to support us all working together through this, and that's what continues to happen. So can you just talk us through how the relationship has evolved? Because you barely knew each other when, when Marama was elected. And you were when you both took the jobs, you were fairly new to politics. And you are kind of chalk and cheese. So how have you grown into your roles together? So you're chalk and cheese at one level, but actually I think we've also got some quite strong personality yeah. similarities. Um, we're both quite even keel. Uh, I think that we both listen before we talk most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I think that we respect each other's kind of place and, you know, the constituencies that we speak to and what it is that we bring. And I think that really works, you know. The biggest thing for me has actually been having a healthy working, close working relationship with each other, being able to have honest disagreements with each other. Uh, but the fundamental thing that we uphold is having a healthy respect for each other as co-leaders, as MPs. And that started to develop quite quickly when, once we became co-leaders. We have to work quite closely. It's a bit of a shame that often the public, well, with any political party, I guess, don't get to see the back the background stuff, don't get to see the behind-the-scenes stuff. We actually have to work with each other the most, more than any of our other colleagues, and that has resulted in having a, a tight-knit working relationship while at the same time, and I think um, fully accepting of uh, each other's differences, each other's differences of opinion, differences of political views and approaches. Life experiences. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's actually... For me, that's far more important than us having to agree on anything, on everything. Are you friends? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and we're each other's first support, even when mm. we're shitty with each other. <laughs> well, it's true, right? Nobody else knows the experience that we're going that's through. Right. And so it's like you turn to the only other person yeah. in the world who, who has even the closest understanding of, of what's right. of what's what yeah. it's like. Now, according to, uh, and you both referenced this in um, your apology the other week, James, according to opinion polls, you guys are around 5%. Mm. How much of a fight are the Greens now in to stay in the New Zealand Parliament? Mm. Of our lives, actually, to stay in Parliament, of our lives. And we're very aware of that. We know that we've got to continue to talk about what we've achieved in the three years and the term of government so far how much further we want to go, upholding the sort of open, public, transparent, democratic system in and of itself. We know that our volunteer campaign is key. <laughs> um, our people making phone calls, our people making day-to-day -day contact with people 
is going to be what holds our campaign up, what holds us together. So, you know, we're very aware of that. We've got a massive job to do. Yeah. Is there a frustrating irony, though? You've probably achieved more in the last three years than the Green Party has in its entire history, and you might be out on your ear in a couple of months. You know, we knew that when we were mm. when we entered government, because if you look at the history of support parties, uh, it's not turned out well <laughs> for them. But ultimately, you know, we're here to make a difference. And so we had to take that opportunity and say that, you know, the opportunity to act on climate change, to um, deal with the biodiversity crisis, to deal with inequality in New Zealand is a greater responsibility than, you know, the, our, our particular fortunes. And to tell you the truth, I think that we have a fantastic record. You know, we've got a, we just set up a website a couple of weeks ago, which has got our list of achievements in it, and you can kind of click through and so on and so forth. It's quite cool. There are over 70 different things that we've done there, not just the 20 that were in our confidence and supply, but just, our, just dozens and dozens and dozens of things that we're really proud of. And I think that when people, you know, when we get up and talk about what we have done over the course of the last three years, people do see, yeah, you've really contributed something. And you should be back in Parliament and you should be part of the next government. Well, the green spin doctor is tapping his watch in the corner of the room there, so we should probably wrap it up for now. Um, Hopefully we'll see you in the next term in Parliament. But thank you very much, James and Marima. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. That was the Tick Tick podcast for Saturday the 12th of September. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Marima Davidson, James Shaw, Andrea Vance, Luke Melpass, Jack Price, Catherine George, Ellie Moore... Patrick Crutz and John Hartevelt and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We will be back next week. Matewa.